it seems like, you know, as we go through, through the year as a, as a church and we spend time in different passages of scripture, that things come up, things happen in our world, um, whether that be unexpected things or, or just day-to-day things, that you all, I almost want to say, you know, things are happening that are so big that maybe we should just talk about those things. And then I'm reminded that um, Scripture, as we enter into it, has a way of speaking to us in incredible ways, um, ways that I often don't even expect, because it is the Holy Spirit-inspired Word of God, and the Holy Spirit continues to speak to us. So whatever is on your heart and mind this morning, I um, ask that you would just open your heart to, to God's voice and as we look at his word, we're going to be reading in Matthew or Mark 5. We're doing a, a series on Mark's gospel. We're going to be reading from Mark 5, verse 21. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came And when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now there was a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years. She had endured much pain, or had endured much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak, for she said, If I but touch his clothes, I will be made well. Immediately, her hemorrhage stopped. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? He looked all around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling fell down before him and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. He allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the leader of the synagogue, he saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. When he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he put all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. 
And immediately the girl got up. She began to walk about. She was 12 years of age. At this, they were overcome with amazement. He strictly ordered them that no one should ever, or should, no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. <clears throat> Mark is gospel. I, I mentioned to you, Mark kind of is, uh, you know, straight to the point. He's pretty blunt in the way he presents these stories. But at the same time, Mark, unlike some of the other gospel writers, includes these just very interesting little details that you hear as you go through the story, right? They laughed at Jesus. Jesus, what he spoke when he, he told the girl to raise up. And then I love that last little detail. And then he said, give her something to eat. You know, she just got raised from the dead. She's probably a little hungry, right? I mean, just it's great to feel the, the, the earthiness of the story as we're hearing it from Mark's gospel. But the other interesting piece here is that there's two stories here, aren't there? There's a story of this man who's looking for his daughter to be healed. And there's a story of the woman who comes in the middle of it. Oftentimes, when a Bible study is done on this passage, or even sermons, and I'm not saying you should never do this, they're separated apart. Maybe you look at the story of the woman, maybe you look at the story of the man. But again, we have to understand, you know, these Gospels are not very long books. And there's a reason that they presented them the way that they did. And I think there's something really important in here that Mark wants us to know. He wants to hear how it all unfolded. He could have said, oh my goodness, there's this amazing miracle. Jesus raised a little girl from the dead. Let me tell you how it happened. And then starts the story and then says, and Jesus went with him. Oh, and along the way, he healed a woman. And then he got to the man's house and all this happened. And it would be a powerful story, but he doesn't do that, does he? He takes quite a bit of time to talk to us about this woman and this healing that happens in the middle of it. You might even say this distraction that comes up in the middle of something really important that Jesus, the healer, is dealing with. We all face distractions in our life. They're something that happens every day, all the time. We uh, were just talking about this amazing distraction that Calvin had in soccer yesterday because he was playing a soccer game and he was a defender and there was a breakaway and it was just this offensive player and the goalie and they're coming close together and you're waiting for a shot and Calvin comes off the side and instead of going straight for the ball, he slides through kind of like a hockey player and lays his whole body out in front of the ball and in that moment, the offensive player was so shocked he had no idea what to do which gave the goalie a chance to jump on the ball and we were like, that was an amazing distraction, Calvin. So sometimes distractions can be really good I have um, this unending distraction in my life, which is my dog, Tico. He's a wonderful little dog, but um, I have, you know, I have uh, some lower back problems. So doctors have said, there's these stretches you need to do every morning and a little bit of exercise. And the thing is, I can't do those hardly anymore because I get down on the ground and my dog, who still thinks he's a puppy, but he's 75 pounds, is on me. He's either laying on my shoulder or he's in my face. I'm trying to stretch. I put my hand out to stretch and he goes, oh, playtime. And he brings something over and drops it in my hand and starts shoving it around. And I was like, I got to get this done. You know, I got to get going in the morning. It's not a good distraction in that case. I mean, I love my dog, but it's not always good. Or maybe you've had the, maybe you've had the experience... Excuse me. This has been causing fits lately. 
Maybe you've had the experience of being um, studying for finals, whether that was in high school or in college, and you're, you're studying and you've got to get it done and um, there's all kinds of distractions that come up. And they're not good because you have a limited amount of time and you have to focus. I'm just grateful that Facebook and all of those social media things happened after I got out of college because I quite honestly don't know how I would have done it. Otherwise, the discipline that must be required to do that, right? I've also shared with you the story uh, many times. I'm just going to tell you the very short version because it comes into my mind a lot of a study they did, a psychological study they did with um, seminary students at Princeton University, which is a Presbyterian seminary, um, quite a while ago, where they gave pastors the assignment of preaching a message on the Good Samaritan. You know the story of the man that walking along the road, he gets uh, caught up and beat up, and then, and then some really good religious folks walk by him and ignore him, and then the unlikely Samaritan, <clears throat> who wasn't looked upon favorably, by the Jewish um, people who are hearing the story, comes along and helps him and takes care of him. And so we have things like the Good Samaritan Laws. Well, they had to preach on that passage and they set them up so that when they got to the building where they were supposed to give the sermon, they said, oh, it's actually been moved to the other side of campus. And so they only had, like, they, they made sure they didn't have enough time to get there in time because of the distance. And so what they did is then on the way that they were taking, they had someone set up on the side who was in distress. And then they looked and saw what happened. And as you can imagine, and unfortunately and sadly, very few stopped to help. Isn't that interesting? And they just saw it as a distraction. They had something really important. They're, they're getting graded on this for goodness sake. And they had to go give their sermon on the Good Samaritan. Well, this woman could be viewed as a distraction. But let's, let's just take a moment to talk about her and what we learn about her from Mark. She's desperate. I mean, she's been bleeding, and this is the kind of bleeding that is, um, you know, our, our text doesn't spell it out, but it's a woman's bleeding, and she has been having this going on for 12 years. And she hasn't been able to find anyone who can help her. In fact, she spent all of her money trying to, you know, find doctors to help her. So she's broke. And they haven't helped, but they've only made her worse. Which you can imagine the kinds of things that may have been practiced in ancient medicine. This would have been a life-debilitating condition. In so many ways. There weren't the kind of sanitary products we have today. Not only that, um, as a Jewish woman, there's laws about this in the Old Testament. And um, we could talk another time about, you know, why these kinds of things might have been in there. But during a time of bleeding, they were forbidden from being a part of worship. Anything that she sat on, anything that she touched, anyone who touched her would have been unclean until evening before they could enter back into, the, into worship. So this is Leviticus, um, from Leviticus 15.25, if you want to look that up. And there's even an extension that says, you know, and if the bleeding doesn't stop, she remains unclean. 
So this kind of thing was in the Old Testament. I just want to, just a quick note, because I actually had a class on Leviticus when I was in seminary. I was like, oh man, I had to take an Old Testament class and they cycle through. And the one I got, by luck of the draw, was Leviticus. And I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding. Because if anyone knows about Leviticus, it's not the easiest book of the Bible to understand and work through. And and one of the things, I had a, a female professor, and one of the things she pointed out was that, you know, we often look at these things from a Western perspective and from our modern times, and um, it's worth considering the fact that at a time before birth control, most women were um, pregnant or nursing for the majority of their life, from the time that they were you know, able to have kids until the time they weren't. And that the demands upon, in a patriarchal society upon women were pretty extraordinary in managing a household and doing these things. And if you were um, in one of these cycles, you would be excused, if you will, from worship for a period of time. So it, we don't know how people would have looked at this. Of course, we looked at it and say unfair. I think a lot of us do. And yet there's a possibility that it may have been a blessing in disguise. However, here's another example of a case where it clearly is not. Twelve years 12 years without being able to be part of the worshiping community of your people. So there's a lot of different kinds of suffering that she's experiencing. And so she goes up and she says, if I can just touch Jesus' robe, if I can just, you know, the crowd's pressing in. By the way, you have to understand she's taking a huge risk. Because if anyone knows who she is and what's going on, then every single person she's touching, she is making unclean. And she's going up to a rabbi that is obviously majorly important right now in this community. The crowds are following him and pressing in on him, and she's touching him. I couldn't help but think about that part where um, at the cross it says that Jesus had that garment that was woven and seamless and how, you know, probably white. I mean, that would have had to been washed according to the law if he had been touched by her. So she goes up and and she touches him and she's healed and she's going away and she hears Jesus saying, who touched me? Right? So by the time she finally comes forward, when she realizes he's not going to stop, and of course the disciples are going, uh, you know, Lord, we know you're, you're divine and all that, but there's a lot of people here. So how can you say which one touched me? I mean, they're all touching you, Right? And he's, he's not giving up. Keep in mind, he's on the way with this man whose daughter is dying. And she finally comes forward, and she comes forward in fear and trembling. I imagine she, she didn't want to be seen. She didn't want to be known. She didn't want people to know what's going on. And it says that she just tells him everything. And then his response, he calls her daughter. He says, your faith has healed you. He says, go in peace. Jesus wanted to heal her, but he also wanted to see her. I think that's one of the powerful messages in this text. You know, we're not, no person, and we are not just some random person in Jesus' life. Sons, daughters, children, It's not enough for Jesus just to have her healed. He wants 
to look her in the eye and say, your faith is healed, you go in peace. But just put yourself in the shoes of the synagogue leader for just a moment. This man, so if we're we're looking at the bigger story of Mark, you may remember, Jesus was on this side of the Sea of Galilee where he is now in Mark 5, and he had been doing some healing and all those kinds of things, but he told his disciples, we need to get away, let's take the boat across to the other side. And so they, they go across the other side, we talked about the calming of the storm that happened, they go to the other side, they spend some time there, and now he's coming back. So we don't know what happened with the synagogue leader's daughter, but I imagine he is just waiting for Jesus to come back. Because between the time Jesus was there and he left, his daughter is deathly ill. So Jesus finally comes back and he has to get through all the crowds. I'm sure they moved a little bit for him. He's an important man in their community. And he he gets up to Jesus and he says, my daughter is dying, would you please come quickly and help her? And Jesus, it just says, Mark said, Jesus went with him. So they're on the way. I can imagine the pace of this walk. His fact, I mean, imagine what's going on in this man's heart. My daughter is dying. She's 12 years old. This man I know can, can heal her. He's been doing this kind of thing. And he's probably just going as fast as he possibly can and letting people catch up, keep up with him. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And then from the synagogue leader's perspective, I mean, I don't know what's going on in his heart, but I imagine once he sees the woman, he's like, oh, her, the unclean woman. We're stopping for her. My daughter is dying. Right? She's an interruption. She's a distraction. It doesn't say that he said anything. We don't know what he's doing during this healing and during this discussion All we know is that Jesus takes some time. He wants to find her. He wants to talk to her. He wants to look at her. Speak peace to her. And then the word comes. From his house. Your daughter's dead. She didn't make it. Don't bother the teacher any longer. I don't know how that felt for the synagogue leader. I've never had to go through that kind of pain as a parent. I hope I never do. I think the, the closest I ever came was the time when um, we were on Anderson Island and Calvin hit his head and we had to get him on a, a fireboat in an ambulance and only one of us could go. And so my wife went and so I was sitting on the island waiting for a ferry to go to the hospital. It was the, the longest wait of my life. Not knowing how my son is doing And honestly, if I'm this man, I would be distraught. I would be angry. I might even be audibly, or at least in my heart, cursing this woman for stopping the healer from coming and healing my daughter. Now, maybe you're better than me. Maybe you wouldn't have done that. (laughs) That's how I would have reacted. And then Jesus speaks to him. And Jesus says... Do not fear, only believe. Notice how, once again, Mark is bringing up this issue of the conflict of fear and faith. And it's an ongoing theme in Mark. Are we living and making our decisions based on fear? Are we willing to live 
and faith, which is a whole lot harder and more risky. You know, Jesus does not heal everyone who was sick at the time when he was alive. There are those who were never touched with healing by Jesus. And I always like to point out every single person Jesus healed eventually died. Death is part of the story until Jesus returns again. And all of us have to face it at some point and at some time. What do we think a synagogue leader might be learning? See, I have to believe that Jesus knows what he's doing here. It's very similar to the story when Mary and Martha want them to come heal Lazarus and Jesus waits for two days before going. And so, you know, Martha says, well, I think a lot of us would say, teacher, why didn't you come? If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Right? It's very similar to that. So I've got to think, there's an intentionality here. I mean, Jesus obviously cares about the woman, but he's also probably wanting to teach something to this ruler of the synagogue. By the way, we have no idea what this synagogue leader's relationship was with Jesus. He's not a rabbi or a scribe. What he is, is he's a, what we would call a layperson, but this is how the synagogues were run. He was someone who would have been responsible for ordering of worship, for getting the preachers to come, for, you know, picking out the scriptures that would be read, for perhaps leading some of the singing and those kinds of things. So he's an, he's an important man, but he's not probably part of that group that we heard about that was really angry and upset about Jesus for healing on the Sabbath, but we don't know. He might be. But Jesus is clearly teaching him something. It's almost as if he's saying to this man, I know your daughter is dying, but believe. Do you see this woman? This woman who's never allowed in your synagogue? Do you see her? Because I do. And he heals her. What about you? Do you ever see people as a distraction? what you need to get done? Boy, this is, a, this is a, I call this one of my growing edges. You know, if there's an area spiritually where God is constantly working on us, this is one of my growing edges to, you know, I get so focused on what I want to get done during the day and how things are happening that um, it's really hard for me with my kids and with others that, that come into my life to not just see them as a distraction and try to get past them as quickly as I can. Some of that's my personality, but some of that's something I think we all struggle with. So do you ever see people as a distraction? Jesus wants us to know that people are not just an object to dismiss and to pass by. Every single person we encounter during our day is a deeply loved child of God. You are called... I am called to be Jesus' hands and feet of healing to them. And the beautiful part about this story and what what I think he's trying to teach the synagogue leader and us is that stopping caring and loving for these people doesn't mean that Jesus isn't going to care for us and can't take care of us. I mean, this, this is the impossible one, right? My daughter died. But then Jesus goes and he raises her to life. You can love others and trust that God will love you at the same time. Let's pray.
Father, I feel like we need to just take a moment and probably confess our hearts right now because we've all been guilty of this, probably even this week, of passing by someone because we had something that was more important to do. That people are most important to you, and so they should be to us. This is hard for us, God. This is really difficult. So we need your Holy Spirit, the presence of your Holy Spirit in our life to speak to us, to guide us, to encourage us, to pause. And Father, we, we do ask that you would continue to work in miraculous ways in our lives as well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.